This is your Field is Our Office. I'm Field Agronomist for South Central Minnesota, Jay Zilski, and with me is my neighbor to the south, Field Agronomist Ashley Storby. That's got kind of a, a new ring to it, Ashley. A field uh -oh. Agronomist to the south rather than the east. Yes. Maybe you can explain to our listeners, <laughs> we had a few changes lately. We did. We had an opportunity now uh, to change our, our area of coverage. Um, and I have a little more concentrated area, so I won't have quite as much drive time, which is good for me. It's good for our farmers. It's good for our agencies. I can be more responsive and, and closer to the field. So now I will be south of Jay in Faribault County, over to Freeborn, Wasika, and Mauer. So it's a pretty exciting change for me, Jay. Well, and Ashley, I'm impressed you already had those new counties memorized. So that's a good oh, deal. And, and Ashley, you know, we, we passed up an opportunity on the last show. It's happy one-year podcast anniversary as of February 3rd. Wow. I can't believe it's been one year. I, I will never forget when you had asked about if I would do a podcast with you. And I was so flattered and humbled and excited. And then we sat down there at the Caribou um, about a year ago today down in Johnston, and we put together our first plan during agronomy conference. Um, so yeah, pretty special one year, Jay. Yes, Ashley. And, and, and listeners, it's kind of a typical guy-gal thing on an anniversary. You know, for me, I did the bare minimum. I, I did a shout out in a, in a tweet for the uh, show uh, uh, Twitter account, uh, happy first anniversary. And then we had a meeting a week ago and Ashley shows up with a gift bag for me and a, and a card. And then what made me most nervous, those of you that know me really well know that I like coffee. And then Ashley bought me coffee and I always get nervous because I've been known as kind of a coffee snob and it was a light roast coffee. And I said, oh boy, how am I going to fake it if I really don't like this light roast coffee? But it was from a roaster down in Lake Mills, Iowa, and it was actually fantastic, Ashley. So thank you for that, Ashley. Oh, yes. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Shout out to Two Daughters Coffee in Lake Mills, Iowa, local roaster, wonderful family. And, and Jay, I have to tell you, I was also nervous that you wouldn't like it and that you would have a hard time telling me. And I wanted to tell you that it was okay if you didn't like it. So those were my thoughts. <laughs> so, and folks, you know, this is a good time as it was our first anniversary here that, that really we do appreciate any feedback that you happen to have for us as far as any suggestions, whether it be topics or ways that we can improve the podcast. And, you know, I was really fortunate a couple of weeks back, uh, one of the listeners actually sent me an email with, with a couple suggestions. And, and one of them was, and we're maybe kind of dropping the ball here a little bit. It was kind of maybe not so much chit chat at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, his comment was, well, hey, why don't you give us a quick teaser of what's on this week's show? And so that's what I am going to do. And I think we'll, we'll do that in the future as well. And so today, um, our guest is going to be Strategic Account Manager Alex Peterson from the Redwood Falls area. And what he did, and he'll tell you about later on the podcast, is he took a common soybean production practice from the southern U.S. to see how it might fit to production in southern Minnesota. And so here's kind of the quick point. He and a dozen of his key accounts experimented with soybean desiccation at the R6.5 growth stage. And he'll, he'll discuss that a little bit more later. They did so successfully this past year with no negative impact on yield. And they actually found it help, helpful in managing harvest logistics. And we'll find out for him whether or not they were also able to maybe capture some early marketing opportunities. One of those operations that he worked with last year was pleased enough with the results that they plan to implement that practice on a, a quarter to a third of their acres 
of soybeans in 2023. So Alex will share more in a bit. But before that, Ashley, I think maybe we might have had a couple of listeners that maybe missed last week's podcast where we had Nate Levan on talking about uh, corn defoliation and maybe some things we might learn from his uh, experiment that might apply to later season fungicide applications. So actually, maybe you kind of share some of those key learnings before we get on to Alex's uh, story. Absolutely. So in the experiment that Nate participated in, uh, the objective was to defoliate the corn plant above, below the ear, and to remove the ear leaf. So we had three different treatments at three different times. Um, So those treatments occurred at R2, blister stage to R3 milk stage, um, R4 dose stage, and R5 dent stage. Uh, So we were able to see what the yield impact was from defoliating corn at those different locations on the plant and the treatments. And one thing that surprised me right away was that the ear leaf alone had much less impact. Now, Nate's justification or or, um, explanation of this is he thinks that the plant was responsive enough to understand, okay, my ear leaf is gone. I'm going to make another leaf the replacement or, or the physiological replacement of my ear leaf so that I'm I'm using another leaf to be the, my, my most important leaf. Um, second, the latest defoliation, which happened at R5, that dent stage, which is about a month before black layers when we start R5 typically, resulted in almost a 20% reduction of kernel weight. So thinking about this, a 20% reduction that late when we're only about a month from black layer, that's a lot of of yield potential that we're giving up by defoliating that plant at that time. Now, this was the above the ear defoliation. And from this, it emboldens us to, when in doubt, stretch that later fungicide pass to a little bit later than we may have previously been comfortable with. Typically, our shutoff had been around that R3 milk stage, pushing into R4 dose stage. But from this research, and and then other fungicide trial work that has occurred here as we're looking at tar spot as a pathogen of importance in our area, we are emboldened to to take that application a little bit later. Now, a a lot of factors go into that decision. Upcoming weather, existing disease pressure, the tolerance of your respective hybrid. So it's a bigger conversation than just what we will have today. But know that that we have data under our belt to give us that emboldened um, opportunity to run a little bit later in our second pass of fungicide, or maybe your first pass if you haven't sprayed yet. And finally, Jay, we understand that hybrid to hybrid results varied in this trial and would likely vary in other scenarios as well. So using an experiment like this, defoliating the hybrid strategically above the ear, below the ear, ear leaf, it gives us an opportunity to learn something about our hybrid. And we encourage you to, to experiment with this in the field if you so choose and, and reach out to us if you'd like help designing a protocol like this. Well, Ashley, thank you. And, and I like the way that you made the tie into tar spot just because this last year there was some very late season tar spot come on. And, you know, I like the fact that you made the tie in. That was really what motivated Nate to do his study to maybe help guide us saying, you know, is or isn't it too late to pull the trigger on a fungicide application to try to manage tar spot? And you did such a good job, Ashley, of encouraging people to maybe try it on their own. I think this should be another one that you and I try to do this year is as well, because as I said in the last show, it's always fun to kind of go out and try wreck a crop that we we work so hard to protect all year long. So I think I'm on board with doing that. Oh, but uh, 
You know, uh, Ashley, thank you again for that. And we're going to move on to today's guest, Alex Peterson, who, you know, I have dubbed as the AP, not to be confused with the NFL running back, Adrian Peterson. And and really, if you think about it, it's more appropriate that that Alex Peterson have that moniker because usually the longevity of pioneer agronomists exceeds that of NFL running back. So I think you can just lay claim to being the AP. But what I really appreciate whenever we have Alex on the show is that he's always seeking novel approaches to boosting yields and productivity with the growers that he works. And, and actually the fact that he is involved with his own uh, farming operation, I believe with his father and I believe an uncle, if I remember this right. And additionally, what he does is he brings that banker's mindset to the decision-making process, always evaluating the economics behind those decisions. So Alex, welcome once again to the show. Thanks for having me, Jay and Ashley. Honestly, Alex, when I heard that you were looking at soybean desiccation last fall, hey, it scared the crap out of me. I hope I can say crap on a podcast, <laughs> but it really, it scared the bejeebers out of me when I heard you were going to do that. And so remind Ashley and I and our listeners why anyone would want to kill their soybeans before they reach full maturity. It sounds crazy to me, Alex. Well, so, and it sounded a little bit crazy to us as well, but if you, you know, rewind all the way back to harvest of 21 and in Southwest Minnesota, we basically had maturity by soil type. Um, so you had, we had a bit of a, a late season drought and, um, and so you, you could kind of recreationally harvest some of these fields if you wanted to. You could go harvest these soil types uh, early and these other ones about five days later. And then it wasn't, you know, that low ground, which had access to moisture throughout the season where your highest yields were, boy, they didn't, they didn't really didn't um, start turning or even mature enough to harvest until, you know, a good 10 days, maybe two weeks after you know, some other areas of the field. So it was, everybody was kind of searching for, well, how do we, you know, how do we, try to even some of these things out. And we had an opportunity to, uh, within Pioneer, we have a lot of cross-pollination that occurs. And we were able to talk to some colleagues in the South who who use this as a cultural practice. And we thought, well, hey, maybe maybe we can try that. And so we we got together you know, with some of them, at least over the phone and Zoom, and, and got some protocols in place. And we introduced it as a concept at some of our winter crop shops. And there were enough growers that said, hey, I'd like to try that too, that we all formed just a, a little bit of a peer group and said, let's share with, with each other uh, what we find. And we're all going to maybe try to accomplish it a bit differently. And that's okay, um, because maybe we'll find some corner cases that don't work or do work better than others. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really fun learning experience. Alex, I really love that explanation. And one of my favorite things about that is just hearing about you using our resources within Pioneer to bring ideas to your territory that are implemented elsewhere, and then creating that peer group locally where you and other operations can begin to implement that process. I, I tell you what, I'm kind of a sucker for learning and seeing people develop and grow. And, and one of my favorite things is seeing people use their resources around them really well. And Alex, you do that as good as anybody. So I love hearing the backstory there. So then tell us, you know, we were talking about harvest logistics and even, evening up the maturity of the field. Um, so some other thoughts that we had are, okay, if we could terminate an earlier maturity soybean soon enough to potentially capture a harvest 
um, window that would enable an early basis or premium opportunity. That may be interesting. You know, in my area, I see that happening with corn, but I, I haven't seen that in soybeans. So I'd be interested from your perspective if there are, if there have historically been um, incentives to a, an early September, mid-September, um, or maybe even a little earlier delivery of soybeans. Um, and then the other, on the opposite side of the spectrum, what we were thinking about was, well, there's some pretty full season varieties. You know, for us, that'd be a 2.5 plus that carry a lot of yield potential that we're limited to play with um, from a maturity perspective. So could we plant those and then terminate those early enough to have a reasonable harvest? So capturing you know, logistics and, and extra dollar potential on the front side and then yield on the on the other side. So what do you think, Alex? Right. So I guess I'll start with uh, with the second one first. So late maturity beans trying to uh, maybe plant something later to capture more yield. And and maybe I'll I'll start with just let's let's talk about capturing more yield. And so um, I like Josh Schaffner. He's, he's a colleague of yours in Southeast Minnesota. He came up here uh, to talk about tar spot a week or so ago. And when someone asked about during a Q&A about high yielding beans, he, he gave out like six secrets to high yielding beans. And number one was attitude, right? You have to, you're not going to get high yielding beans unless you're trying to get high yielding beans. Uh, if you treat beans like a secondary crop, like a weed, um, you're, you're probably not going to get there. Well, the encouraging news is many people are engaging in uh, a few cultural practice tweaks and are seeing awesome results. Uh, and and we're, we're seeing really high yielding APHs or, or we're seeing APHs start to increase because of the last few years, you know, people are treating beans, um, you know, like they've traditionally treated their corn crops. So if you step back and think about, you know, ideally, if you're looking at threshing beans and cutting beans, Ideally, you'd, you'd want um, uh, some of the easiest cutting beans are beans that, uh, let's just say the, the stems are full of, um, I, Jay, since we can say crap, I think the term is stem crap. You get there and there's about every disease you can find and it's like they, they matured, but um, you know, they, really, they really cut easy because you know, there's a lot of late season onset of different diseases that come in and, and make them easy to cut and they mature maybe quite a bit faster. But these high yielding beans, it turns out that there's there's they're a lot harder to thrash. Um, they pack a ton of yield. We keep these things healthy and dark late into the season, and they're pumping uh, weight into those pods. And then once maturity occurs, that bean is extremely healthy, and it seems like higher yielding beans take longer to mature. So even higher yielding two ones will take longer to mature than just a standard production. 2.1. And so then the, the thought process there is absolutely, maybe we can stretch maturity, but in some cases the need actually, it becomes, we, we probably need to start looking at this as a cultural practice for some of our highest yielding um, standard maturity growers, simply because those beans are tough to cut. Um, and then looking at er capturing early basis absolutely you know we, we all know planting beans early is the key to uh, is one of the big keys to to getting high yields um, but planting an early bean early can sometimes and if, if you're able to capture like a early, late august maybe let's call it early september basis there's a lot of times or i would say at least 50 percent of the time 60 cents to a dollar 20 per bushel um and then all of the benefits of getting tillage done on time and timely field operations, et cetera. I mean, think of the, think of that. And so, 
if we plant an early bean early and we can desiccate it, maybe we are able to capture some of that um, late season or early season premium. Well, that's fantastic, Alex. What a great explanation. One of the things you said that got me very excited is I'm thinking about your comments on the easiest cutting beans being the beans that are ridden with some kind of stem diseases late season. And yeah, they go through the head really nice and you have a really nice harvest experience, but you you may be giving up some potential. Now I'm thinking back of, of my service calls the last couple of years, but not so much this year, but the year before um, we had fantastic bean yields, Alex. We had a really nice year for beans and I had a lot of service calls on, on tough cutting beans. And it, there was not variety correlation. There was a little bit of geographic correlation, but you know what the geographic correlation was? That's where we're getting the biggest bean yields. Um, and then you could correlate it down even further to the highest yielding farms that were in beans. Um, and so those those are tough calls because I know it's frustrating when, when you're going really slow and you got a lot of acres to get done. But those are the best beans. So those are those are difficult conversations to have because you you, you know it's a, it's it's a little bit delicate. And I love thinking about desiccation as a tool to help those operations in those scenarios. Yeah, that's a very interesting, Alex. And in you commented as well. It doesn't necessarily need to be a full season bean, just a high yielding, high yield potential field. Where you know, and what I like about this, Alex, as well as the fact that. Oftentimes, you know, there, there's some really neat, innovative things that people can try, whether it be corn or beans. And yet, sometimes we've got to wait till people get the basics taken care of before they go on to the next thing. And so, you know, you quantify it as saying, you know, this is a practice for high yield potential fields where, you know, we're having higher yields because the beans are healthier and consequently they potentially create some challenges as far as um, harvest as well. And and I remember 2021 as, as well. I, I rode on a lot of combines with a lot of folks that were frustrated trying to cut green stems on beans. And some of that, like Ashley said, very high yields. We had some rains come late that help boost some really high yields on the beans and consequently we had some of those green stems. So, so you know, as I think I've heard uh, a number of places, I think even when we talked and we had you previously as a guest on the podcast, talking about, okay, timing of that desiccation. And that's the thing that really scares me about it. And, you know, help the listeners. And my understanding is we look at R6.5, and so since this is a podcast, we can't show pictures, so you're going to have to visually describe to people what R6.5 looks like on that bean in the pod. But then also, how do you address then field variation? You mentioned at the outset, how do you deal with that field variation and considering when you pull the trigger, Alex? That's a great question. So um, so we actually, uh, we, we brought in an agronomist uh, from the south uh, to our crop shops last winter. And he was able to show the pictures of what our 6.5 looks like. And, and for the listeners, what our 6.5 is, is essentially think of it as it's like black layer in corn, right? The plant is done really pouring any resources into that, um, into that grain anymore. And the end of life procedures now begin. And so our 6.5 is kind of that, or it isn't kind of that, it is that. For soybeans and so it's where the beans detach from the pods um and it's i'll tell you what guys it's the most it is the most nerve-wracking thing to try to get it right because we invited that same agronomist back 
back in September to a PKP plot to show us in some of our early beans what that might look like. And, you know, I'm you're kind of nodding your head and you're like, yeah, I see what you see, but you're do you really see what he sees? And because it's it's uncomfortably green. I'll, I'll put it that way. R6.5 mm. is still uncomfortably green. And so it's it's really about getting somebody who's got knowledge with this practice in your field um, and, and is pretty good at staging as well. Um, and it's funny how when you go out one day, it's it's not R6.5 and two days later, all of a sudden it's R6.5. Um, now, what are the penalties for getting it wrong and going too early? Previous to R6.5, um, we didn't see any of that in our group, but we were told from folks down south that you're not necessarily going to impact yield as much as you think because a lot of the yield is baked. If you if you pull the trigger before R6.5, it's probably R6.25 or R6.3. A lot of that yield is baked, but you'll have these lima beans that just won't really dry down. Um, that's what will occur if it doesn't mature naturally. If you wait till R7, then you're just giving up some of the benefit. Uh, so some of the folks in our study decided to wait till R7 because they just felt more comfortable. And JD, your question, um, we still had in a, much of my geography, we still had uneven maturing fields this year, maturity by soil mm -hmm. type. Um, and so in an example that, I will, that I'll show you here um, coming up in a bit, uh, we actually had to wait until what we deemed the highest yielding area of the field was ready. So we were in a we were in a fairly um, decent drought again. We didn't just have a late season drought; we had an all season drought. And so you can imagine those the Glencoe Webster type Normania soil types, where you know the soil types the intakes are located in had the highest water holding capacity. Those beans got to our six and a half the latest, and we knew those were going to be the highest yielding areas of the farm. So we waited until they were ready to pull the trigger, which inevitably meant other areas of the farm were past prime. Um, so the other thing is, is in, in our neck of the woods, we have iron deficiency chlorosis and those areas tend to stay greener longer, whether you like it or not. And so um, this, the desiccation, what we found was it, it kind of sped things up in those areas to help us cut through, you know, in, in this case, it was low, lower yielding beans, um, but they happened to be green late into the season because of iron chlorosis. So Alex, I'm looking here i always get a cheat on these soybean maturities so i'm i'm holding my phone up and it's actually i tweeted it from the show's account this morning as kind of a teaser for this podcast that really illustrates those soybean growth stages and so as as i look at the the pictures you you mentioned it earlier where it's it's kind of the equivalent to, of black layer and corn but we're looking at soybeans it's when if you split that pod open that you can see that the the bean there has kind of separated from that that the membrane there and it's you know it's not yellow yet and it's not green it's kind of that lime green color is how i would describe what that uh looks like for for individuals and and i like what you said you know two things that would really like that you said is is one you timed it on what historically you know is the highest yielding portion of the field. That's what was really your tr uh, your tip to when you would pull the trigger as far as desiccating 
those uh, soybeans. And then I also uh, like the fact that, you know, for those that are maybe a little concerned that, uh, you know, if you wait a little bit, maybe you're going to wait till they turn a slight yellowish color before you pull the trigger. So those are a couple of key things that that maybe you're making me feel a little more comfortable, <laughs> uh, Alex, as, as well. So if we've if we've started to make some of our listeners feel a little comfortable too, their next question might be, okay, maybe maybe this is something for me to look at trying this year on some specific farms, particularly my higher yielding farms that are going into soybeans this year. Okay, so their next question might be, what products would we use? So Alex, what have you worked with thus far? Right, so we had several growers who, I mean, we were told by the folks down south you're going to use Paraquat, right? You're going to use Gramoxone. That's the one to use. And I would say just, you know, being the folks up north, it's like, well, we'll do that, but we also want to try something a little bit safer. Um, you know, for those listeners out there, you know, Gramoxone, Paraquat is a, a skull and crossbones. Uh, you, need, you do need to be careful It's um, of getting it, you know, in your uh, and not on your skin as much as it is ingestion, you know, in your mouth and your eyes, things that way. Um, but if you use the appropriate handling equipment that comes with the product when you purchase it, there's some valving um, and then some PPE um, that, that you can purchase as well. Um, you know, some comments from the field were it was no problem if we just respected it. Um, now, we also used Sharpen. Um, because Sharpen is labeled for desiccation, and I and we know that it's used in edible fields locally. Um, so one of the things the folks down south said was that if you use Sharpen, it's more of a burner than a, than a killer. You know, you're you're not, you will probably shed leaves, but you may not turn the stems brown. You you'll probably still have green stems. And um, so we we tried it on our own farm. Sharpen and Gramoxone. And I had several growers who tried, I should say several, I had two growers uh, who also tried Sharpen and, um, and Gramoxone. And our thoughts were, you can just skip the Sharpen. Um, it, it, it did what the folks down south said it would do. In fact, if you don't mind, uh, while we're on here, I'll share, I'll share a screen and then we'll describe what I'm looking at. But I think the users will, will be able to uh, uh, we'll be interested in in what we're seeing here. So I'm going to share my screen. So as you're doing that, Alex, so the thought I the thought that occurred to me as you were saying that, and I'll be interested in your thoughts, is this. So okay, the sharpen seemed like it was more of a burner. The gramoxone was instant death. Okay, <laughs> for lack of a better description, do you think that if a person was a little more nervous about spraying at R6.5 and they were going to err on being closer to R7, do you think that that sharpen might work a little bit better for those folks because the plant's already kind of given it up? Would that you think it might have a fit there or or do you just really think it, it's gramoxone and if you're going to do it it should be gramoxone yeah if it's uh that's a great question so we in this case in this particular farm that you're looking at on the screen we actually waited till r7 and um you'll see 
Uh, so viewers, what I'm showing Jay and Ashley, this is a quarter section, a perfectly square quarter. Um, this happens to be on our own operations, so I'm able to share uh, some imagery here. This is harvest moisture map. And so what my dad did was he went around the field with a ground rig, 20 gallon an acre uh, with germoxone. And he went with the 10.7 ounce rate, which is the highest labeled rate. And he went around the field and then picked a picked a section in the middle of the farm where he went uh, with that high labeled rate. And you'll see that area of yellow, that area of lowest moisture. That was that 10.7 ounce rate. And then he loaded up with germoxone again. And he wanted to come out with a perfect sprayer pass. So he actually reduced the rate of gramoxone down to somewhere in the eight, upper eights, low nines. Um, and that's the area in the south end of this farm. You'll see uh, about a point higher moisture at harvest. So it was a lower use rate of gramoxone. Um, to the north of that, the very north of this farm, which is an, an additional point above that low rate of gramoxone, that's sharpened. So that was the two ounce rate of sharpen. And then you'll see a pink streak right in the middle where right above the gramoxone at 10.7, there's a pink streak that's greater than 16% moisture. That's 132 feet where he did nothing. So in the center of this farm, you've got labeled rate of gramoxone next to nothing next to sharpen. And you guys can see just the moisture differences at harvest, right? Um, I'll also take you to, to this. This is a uh, this is a field imagery. So this is going to show field a field health image, um, and so this takes you to um, October sixth, which is the harvest date. And it's interesting because if I go to the true color image, you can see that most of this field is harvested. Uh, my uncle's on the north end of the farm. Um, over half the field's harvested. But if you go back to the satellite image, you can still pick out where he left and did nothing, right? There's no desiccation right in the center of the farm. That's already been harvested and it's still picking that up. In fact, let's mm -hmm. go to let's go to October 9th where it's fully harvested and you'll see you can actually pick up in the residue. You can see the difference in red in the residue where the de different desiccation rates and and, and wow. uh, herbicides were taking place. So there's your true color, it's all harvested. Flip it back to the imagery and um, you can see just differences. So, Jay, to your, to your, and, and by the way, viewers, our listeners, uh, September 19th is when we sprayed. October 6th is when we harvested. So, you know, you're looking at a 11 and 6, so 17 days. Uh, the pre-harvest interval for Gramoxone is 14. And we had a September 28th killing frost. So we, we even had a frost that came in and impacted this. Um, and I would say that the, the results we would, we would have seen here, this is a 2-1, um, 21A, 28 extend um, soybean. The results we see here would have probably been greater differences in moisture had we not received that September 28th killing frost, if that makes sense. Alex, I'm looking at these these visuals, and it's just such a stark difference between the treatments that you had, the germoxone at the two different rates, um, and then your sharpen, and then your untreated area is so very stark. And something that occurred to me that I I hadn't previously thought about, um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Would would you expect this would have benefits in a in a reduced till system going into the next year, whether that's strip till 
or no-till in helping to break down that that soybean residue, particularly as we have really high-yielding soybeans, you get a lot more vegetative material out there. Um, have you seen any differences in that seed bed then coming into the next year? You know, so we, fall of 22 was our first fall uh, engaging in this, and, and it was just interesting to see that even the satellite can pick up after harvest the different treatment areas so, so well. Um, so I'm expecting come spring that we're going to see some differences and we'll, we'll get to, uh, we do have one, one grower in our subset who did, uh, who, who is a minimum till slash no till, uh, grower. And so it'll be neat to see what their results are too, but I'd say more to come on that, Ashley, uh, yeah. that'd be maybe for a future one, but I think that's a future benefit that we, or hypothesis of a future benefit potential. Absolutely. Alex, that's a very interesting map that you have, and I'm going to ask you to, whether or not you might be willing to share that. And if somehow or another we could put some labels on that and possibly tweet it out from the uh, the show's Twitter account, because it's, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's very graphic and easy for us to see. You did a great job of explaining it. Okay. So we look at this, Alex. OK, so we got harvest logistics. OK, but OK, let's tell us, tell us and the listeners what kind of results did they see, both as far as harvest logistics and then also as far as yield? What did we see as far as yield? Yeah, so harvest logistics, uh, you know, my, I can go by my uncle's commentary here. He was able to get through everything in this farm, this particular farm. Um, but he, his comment was is that the, the gramoxone beans cut like butter. Um, and I'll flip to the yield here and you'll see that uh, there was no impact to yield um, and there was highly variable yields in this farm. So this farm has some areas that are um, have extremely high pH, very um, uh, high, you know, they're, I would probably, I would call it eight plus, but then your CCE, your calcium carbonate equivalent would be in the eight to 9% range. So it's a, it's almost a darn near a liming agent. Um, and so we've got fairly high iron chlorosis issues here, and you'll see that there are areas of the farm that were, uh, were impacted by that. Um, and those areas typically would stay much greener, much longer, and, um, and typically carry a higher moisture. But with, with this desiccation, we did not see that higher moisture. And I'll maybe go and put this in side-by-side -side mode for you, and you'll see that there's really no correlation in terms of yield and the different treatments we had. Interesting, very interesting. So no difference in yield, chromoxone-treated beans cut like butter. So let's, okay, so let's talk about the economics. Yeah, uh, yeah, so the banker in me, Jay, wants to uh, wants to make sure we're doing this for a reason. Uh, and, and it's not just um, you know, it's going to make sense for the operation as a whole. Um, so we used a ground rig and we used our own ground rig. We have solid seeded soybeans. Uh, we had a two post applications of herbicide. We had a insecticide and a fungicide. So this was the fifth trip, right? I mean, I, I, I think my dad could have probably turned the auto steer off and closed his eyes and it probably would have just gone down that path. Uh, mm -hmm. So so we were already going down. You know, we weren't really running down beans at that point. Um, fully understand that those in 20, 22, 30 inch systems may experience something different with a ground rig. And, and I think, um, you know, 
let's make sure we address the ground rig versus aerial application because we had some stark differences there. Uh, but from an economic standpoint, the 10.7 ounce rate of germoxone skin with adjuvants and, and the like are going to run you about three to four dollars an acre for the product. Um, the two ounces of sharpen with adjuvants was 12 to 13. So, you know, sharpen being a more expensive, lower efficacy product, I think it's easy for us to say, let's just probably set that off to the side. Um, but at three to four dollars an acre plus your app, plus your let's call it six bucks for your application, you're nine to ten dollars an acre for something like this. And the ability to pour as much as you can into the crop, raise the highest yielding, latest maturity beans as you can, and then make sure and ensure you can harvest them or to plant early beans early. And none of us did that this year. And, and I think we may have some folks trying that this next year. But to plant early beans early and attempt to capture a September basis that is a, that is advantageous, um, I think that there's some there's potentially some some good economics there. I mean, think about sixty dollars an acre or sixty bushels an acre in beans, and or even fifty, and you can get another dollar. There's fifty dollars an acre, and for a ten dollar application, I mean, it's for every acre you do this on, you, you know, we're advantaged. And then again, timely whether it's tiling or tillage or manure, you can you can get more timely field operations as well. So Alex, you made reference to the fact that you used a ground rig, which I, I think is 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 nice to it's good to hear because you, you mentioned the fact that because of your other passes during the growing season with a ground rig, you were able to get through without driving down any beans, any beans had already been driven on. But then you made reference to the fact that we'll talk about aerial application. So you had some folks that did aerial application and that perhaps impacted the efficacy of the desiccant. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we learned we learned a lot and I'm not going to rule out aerial, but I will say that it comes with some caveats, right? Um, so what you guys are looking at here is the only of the 12 operations was the only operation that did a ground rig. Um, the rest of them did various different aerial applicators. And so we had, I think, a helicopter in one case, but then everything else was with uh, with a plane, uh, two to three gallons an acre. And, and what we found was that the pilots, you know, about half the pilots wouldn't spray gramoxone. Um, and so and the ones that did. You know, we're saying, hey, let's let's maybe try to get a little bit lower uh, to the ground to try to minimize drift. And so what we saw in some of those cases were, you know, beans that were impacted versus and then you had strips of green in between. Right. Because you didn't get that side to side drifting um, of the of like you normally do with a plane that you count on uh, because we were maybe a little bit closer to that crop. Um, the inability to potentially get into every corner of the field. Right. Uh, with an aerial application. And then frankly, two to three gallons uh, of product on a high yielding, you know, call it chest high soybean is not enough to get deeper into the canopy as as deep as maybe you'd want. So we if we're we're gonna try some four gallon applications this next year, a couple growers are. Um, what we saw with our with our ground rig at like 20 gallons an acre on these on these soybeans in the highest yielding areas of this farm, which went over, you know, 75, 70, 75 bushel, is that we only got about two thirds canopy penetration. 
Um, and so we had we have some pictures of plants that we pulled and you can see the top is desiccated and the bottom is, is actually further behind than the top is. Um, and so you can imagine that's at 20 gallon an acre. What would it look like if we only had two to three? Um, so just some, you know, if growers are looking at trying it, I would say one thing they could try right away is to see if they can get a three to four or four to five gallon an acre application rate if they're going to go aerial. These are all amazing points, and I've taken so many notes, Alex. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed that. So the big question, you know, the, the measure of success is you will have folks doing this again next year, correct? And then on your own farm, will you have any new participants? Yeah, so we'll have we'll have some new participants uh, who are, you know, going to attempt to raise a 2.5. Actually, uh, one operation is going to go to a 2.6. We have a, a really high yielding 2.6 conventional soybean and they're selling into that market. So we're going to be uh, planting a 2.6 soybean, a 2.5 soybean. These are on other operations they're going to try on our own farm. Uh, we're still going to stop at about that 2-1. Um, interestingly enough, this this field was a 2-1 and it was harvested before some of our 1-8s. Um, so just you kind of have that neighborhood. What's what's the neighborhood doing? Well, the neighborhood's in 1-8s, the neighborhood's in 1-5s. You know, we were probably the first people in the neighborhood in 2-1 in, uh, bean. Um, but one of the sayings from the folks down south was, um, the day you spray, your combine better be ready because within two weeks, you will be harvesting, right? You're gonna have more consistent moisture, but uh, you know we all know what can happen if the moisture gets away from you. So let's make sure we have that combine ready the day we spray um, and go from there. And then I know down south, I've you know I've heard different products that are used as well. But I mean, I've I've heard of folks even stretching the rate, going beyond labeled rate, and you know we're never gonna advocate for that. Um, and the thing that I look at here is the moisture if if you increase the rate of gramoxone it's my belief that you your beans would be ready before your two-week pre-harvest interval right mm -hmm. so you'd be violating the label in in two cases um and so if you want to stay on label uh which which we should do and we and we're required to do um that 10.7 ounce rate seems to be well correlated with a 14 to 16 day pre-harvest interval. I mean, thinking here, guys, we even had a September 28th frost, right? And we're harvesting 12 to 13% gramoxone. Uh, these gramoxone at 10.7 ounces were 12 to 13% the day harvest. Um, That's fantastic, Alex. I, wonderful points. Jay, are you, are you ready for me to provide my key points from all my notes here? I think I am, Ashley. Go right ahead. Okay, wonderful. Um, lots of things that I, I took from this, Alex J. So really enjoyed the conversation. Um, first thing that I would review for our listeners is if we're looking at desiccation in soybeans, it's two opportunities. It's an early variety that we'd like to terminate early uh, to capture a, a basis opportunity early in harvest, um, late in the growing season, or it's a full season variety for the um, for the given geography, a high yielding farm that we know tends to be one of those farms that matures a little bit later per its productivity. Um, and we have an opportunity to even up that harvest experience and, and the, the logistics on that particular farm to be able to harvest a little more timely with an, an even moisture across the farm. Um, if we're staging a farm, we want to stage based on what area the farm is at the latest maturity, we would just as soon 
not desiccate a farm where part of the farm is at that R six and a half, but the other is later. We we just assume the majority of the farm be that R six and a half or earlier. And likely that that latest part of your farm is going to be those areas that hold a little bit more moisture, tend to be a little more productive, or depending on your area and your farm, maybe they have some higher pHs as well. Um, Alex did a great job explaining to us what R six and a half is. So at that time, that is uh, the same as our black layer in corn where that soybean has separated from that protective membrane is no longer taking in nutrients and water um, has reached its its highest weight and is going to then move to maturity um, and reduce moisture from there. Um, and then looking at that ground rig versus that aerial app, Alex has great examples that that ground rig is going to be more efficacious. If we need to do an aerial application, you got to make sure your applicator will will spray the product and is willing to potentially increase the rate a little bit more as well um, to penetrate into that canopy. Um, as far as product goes, Gramoxin versus Sharpen, Alex has shown us that he had much more success with Gramoxone at that 10.7 ounce um, product use, 20 gallon an acre application that was running around three to $4 an acre. Um, and then pencil in your application costs as well to get you a total cost per acre. Um, and then I guess I would say for, for our listeners, if you're thinking about this, you know, it's, it's not a whole farm application, is it? It's uh, choosing the specific scenarios that make sense and um, then making a really well-informed decision when you pull the trigger on that application. Jay, did I miss anything there? I think you touched on it extremely well, Ashley. You're always so good at summarizing those things. And, and I like the key points that you called out. And of course, Ashley, Alex always has something up his sleeve. Um, that that kind of sounds negative. Okay. He's, he's got a bag of tricks. Okay. He's always got a bag of tricks of new and innovative things he's trying. And so, Alex, maybe you can just briefly share one of those things that you're going to be looking at this year that's maybe a little unique or different. And, and you've actually been doing it for a couple of years. And then Ashley will close out the show here. Yeah, so this year we'll be trying some soy, uh, sulfur and soybeans in two by two. So for the last five uh, five or so years, we've had various folks doing uh, you know broadcast applications of sulfur and UAN. You know, typically with the pre-emerge herbicide, uh, replacing some form of water with an ATS or UAN. Um, and really, that sulfur, you know, being for the beans themselves and not to try to feed the carbon penalty. So what we're looking at doing is to see what you know what can we put in that that uh, in that two by two band, uh, and are we gonna get responses to sulfur there? That is fantastic, Alex. Thank you for sharing what's what's on your radar for your, for not up your sleeve, but your bag of tricks. And Alex always brings us such interesting information. We appreciate you, Alex. Thank you for taking time away from from your your agencies, your customers to spend time with us. We, we really, really appreciate um, you being a return guest on the show. Listeners, you can follow the podcast now on Twitter. The show handle there is at YFO Agronomy or me personally. My handle is at Ashley Storby and Jay can be found at Twitter at SeedZeke. And Alex, where could listeners find you? Yeah, so on Twitter, it would be at Pioneer Pete MN. And uh, I need, I think, 
2023 growing season, I'm committing to po doing more posting there. So haven't been a big tweeter, but um, I've seen the responses. Uh, you, know, you guys in, in your, between your podcast and your personal accounts have just gotten so much great information into the hands of growers that uh, I'd love to to uh, to follow suit as well and, and see see what um, what Twitter can do. Um, there. So Pioneer Pete MN. And then we also have a biweekly agronomy update that we're going to start sending out in late March. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. If you want to be on that list, just reach out to Ashley or Jay and they can get you hooked up. Fantastic. Thank you, Alex. You can join Jay and me on our next episode as we share information about reduced statured corn. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 31 of Your Field is Our Office. Be safe and stay healthy.